welcome to One Size Does Not Fit All with Well Life Tribe. We're sponsored by Renourish. Renourish are delicious grab-and-go fresh soups in a pioneering, heatable, fully recyclable bottle. Renourish soups are plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free and packed with vitamins. Find them in all Waitrose stores. Hi, and welcome to the Wildlife Tribe podcast, One Size Does Not Fit All, with me, Kat. Um, and today I am flying solo. Um, Liberty hasn't been able to make it today. It's a summer holiday, so it's all a bit crazy with our kids and our families. So we're all a bit all over the place. And I've kind of had, you know, a really good week, but also kind of a crazy week. I'm kind of trying to keep the kids occupied. I'm trying to do work and also I'm looking at people's holiday pictures on the social media getting really jealous um but actually half listening to the news half not listening to the news you know it's just I think my head feels like it's going to explode um at the moment um but I'm really privileged today because I have an amazing guest somebody who I really like and who I've absolutely loved from the moment I met her um and I'm gonna say Dr Nina (laughs) because um, I'm really terrible at saying the whole name, but I'm going to say that. So Dr. Nina, if you would love to introduce yourself to everybody, I would love that. Sure. So my name is Dr. Nina Fuller-Chevelle, and I know it's a mouthful, cat, so I don't blame you at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I'm a functional integrative medicine doctor. I have a clinic based in Hampshire called Synthesis Clinic. And at the clinic, we specialize in gut health, women's health and hormones and uh, mental health and well-being. Wow. I mean, that's just, you know, so can you take us back? Can you explain? Because obviously you're a, you know, you're a, you're a GP as well, aren't you? I'm, I used to be a hospital doctor. Actually. used to be a hospital doctor. That's it. And um, so then can you tell us how did you get into the functional medicine side of this? Sure. Um, Well, actually, I started off my life as a scientist. So I did natural sciences at Cambridge first. um, And I was actually looking into going to cancer research. So I did a few short research projects and then went actually into medical education. So running conferences for doctors and educating doctors for a little bit. Um, While I did that, I also did my nutrition degree. Uh, And that's really when my eyes were hugely opened up in terms of the power of personalized nutrition, personalized health approach, um, two things. And I thought, okay, well, nutrition's great, but that's not enough. So I'm going to go off and do medicine now. So I went into medicine almost the other way around. So some doctors come out of medicine, then do nutrition later, but I did nutrition and science first and then went into medicine. Um, And then I, um, as I came out of it and started working in the NHS as a doctor, I could sort of see how the worlds just weren't even overlapping in any kind of Venn diagram way that, you know, we were doing, we could do amazing heroic life-saving things with medicine, but actually the chronic lifestyle driven diseases we were not effective at managing. So I was thinking, okay, well, this is where nutrition has a whole power of a you know, power that we can bring to the person and actually a bit of empowerment for them to do something about their health. And throughout all of the medical side of things, I did my own personal sort of private um, function medicine, function nutrition practice. And then I got diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was like, oh, okay, right. Well, now is the time to throw the book at it. Um, and so I did. And I expanded my toolkit sort of way above and beyond you know, nutrition and lifestyle to really incorporate a lot more 
about learning about anything from kind of mind body medicine so in terms of mindfulness breath work yoga um, to learning about acupuncture and how that can be helpful during cancer treatment um, and then over the a uh, couple of following years really completed treatment completed um bit of training that i had to do and then decided to set up my own clinic um because i wanted to have the power to treat people the way that i wanted to treat them and not be kind of constrained by short appointments by not being able to provide the service that i i think could benefit people really yeah um, and as much as we can, we also try and aim at the clinic to provide the evidence in the case studies and very other, very many other things in terms of resources to the wider community so they can be used within the NHS and within, you know, group work and within communities. Um, and we're currently developing some online programs as well, which we um, are going to try and bring out to improve access to information really for people. But that's how I came to functional medicine being kind of my life's work. And um, for people who don't know much about functional medicine, it's really the root cause-based personalized medicine. It takes the best bits of science, I like to think, and physiology and pathology and how the whole complexity of that and marries it up with a whole person view, marries it up with a view of how we're not just physiology, we also have mental emotional and social and spiritual angles and actually it's the whole of us that needs to be assessed and treated not just the little bit our leg or our lungs or our breast cancer that sort of thing yeah so, wow your cv is amazing when you reel off absolutely everything that you've done um talking about that though do you think it was the breast cancer that made it so much more magnified for you to to really delve into this and do you think if that hadn't have happened would you have done this i think I, I was always doing it but i think what it did give me um and what i'm always entirely grateful to my breast cancer for is it allowed me to step off the conventional medicine treadmill right and the thing is because you kind of get into medicine that's it you are down that path you are, you have your career path you have to do your exams and other bits and pieces and that is it and there's very little flexibility within that structure and there's very little scope for individualizing or personalizing quite a lot and my breast cancer actually said to me you know what why why push yourself into a system that doesn't fit because you, you are not the person who just wants to prescribe drugs and don't get me wrong then you know drugs are amazing life-saving interventions i'm very grateful but you want to take a different view. So why fit yourself like a square peg trying to fit in the round hole? Do something different. Lau gave me permission to really do what I want to do, to create a clinic that I would want to come to when I was first diagnosed. Right. So you could actually really see all the things that people really needed and they weren't specifically getting because it's such a, you know, what is the statistics on cancer now? It's really quite a lot of people get it, don't they? So it's very hard to manage it, I guess, as it comes through the door quite thick and fast in a way for the NHS. Um, but I think when you go through the process and you go through it with your eyes slightly open, that's when you do realize what else you need to do for yourself, don't you? I think that's probably where you've probably come at it with the functional medicine. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing is, is throughout my, my treatment, I think what you realize as well is there's a lot of pressure, both 
put on medics to really provide everything. I think that the thing is, and and medicines created that as an institution, really. Yeah. Because we've always told patients, come to me and I will fix your problem kind of thing. And here's yeah. the medicine. But we actually, we can't do that with chronic lifestyle driven disease, including cancer. Because what we know is, yes, we can treat it when it turns up, but we also need to look at the terrain, what conditions within the body, including chronic inflammation, including you know, genetics, including lots of other things, what has predisposed a person to, to get this cancer? Why this cancer? Why this person? Why now? Is what I ask because, and we're not in the medicine of why anymore, I think, in, in, in conventional medicine. We're in the medicine of what Dr. Hyman calls it, name it, shame it, tame it kind of model of medicine you know we've got a diagnosis this is this is what your symptoms are a result of this diagnosis i'm going to give you this medicine but with cancer i think and with a number of other lifestyle driven diseases actually there's a whole ton of stuff that the person can do themselves to help improve their health and well-being instead of just handing the whole of their power over to the institution and go right okay you fix me but unfortunately, as medics, we don't get enough education in that. We don't get enough education in nutrition and lifestyle medicine. In all of my years of Cambridge, yeah, I had two hours of nutrition training. Really? Hours. Yes. Crikey. That was it. So I was lucky because obviously I was well educated. But and think so therefore when we come to our doctors and we expect them to know something about, I don't know, good diet for gut health or good diet for you know, breast cancer during chemotherapy, there may not be the right people to actually tell us this. Because yeah. your, your oncologist and your medical team are working incredibly hard to try and keep up with all the research that's coming out on, you know, the drugs and, and cancer and molecular stuff and all sorts of other things. So I think that's where the power is of building your therapeutic team. And I love teams because I think that's how we were always designed to thrive. We are community people. We're not solo artists in this world. So we can't expect all of our healthcare to be provided just from the medical side of things. Yeah. If we need nutrition advice, we should go and find ourselves a trusted nutrition expert that we can talk to. If we want to learn more about yoga, you know, I'm not going to go to my doctor and go, can you teach me some yoga poses? <laughs> but yet we expect our doctors to provide the same amount of information on nutrition. Yeah. Don't, we, uh, currently, it's not within medical education. It is changing. And I think there's a lot of hope that I have that lifestyle medicine will become a part of the curriculum. And that when you go to, to see your doctor, whether whoever you go and see, that there will be a baseline awareness of the gut microbiome, what is a healthy Mediterranean diet, what is good in terms of um, you know, physical activity, mind-body medicine, stress management. When we get that base, I think that would be amazing. And, I, and that's what Dr. Chatterjee is fantastic at bringing out into the public, you know, with his yeah. But at the moment, I think when you go to see your doctor, don't always expect them to provide everything, but find yourself a team of experts who can. And I think that's what I've realized is that we need a team to get better, particularly when we have something as disruptive to all of ourselves, you know, in terms of all the layers of our being as cancer. You know, I, I, I saw a psychologist because actually, obviously the diagnosis of cancer is traumatic enough. Yeah. Um, and a lot of us do carry a number of other baggage throughout our lives. So 
seek seek a good good health team as i would always say i think it's great to get little pieces of the puzzle from different people and then you yourself will know what's right for you you know you within yourself your body and your mind and your soul will tell you what sits right with them yeah no, and i 100 percent agree with you actually because i also have been through uh, a cancer journey as you know and for me um i had to dig really deep I had an onion that was layered very heavily. Um, and I would say I had to go right back to the beginning of where it all started. And that took a lot, a lot. But it is what I've had to do to heal myself, actually. And I, what I would also say is that if anybody else is going through it at the moment, is that it, it's for you to start to being honest with yourself. And it takes a while, doesn't it, to really find out where it's all coming from but you have to open up that book as well to really look inside um and for me i would say it's taken it's not it's not something that happens immediately um it can take years can't it you know um but i think like you say uh, have an honest look about how you eat um are you moving your body you know like you know really people i mean it's funny i just um saw somebody um who i i was just being really like oh god i hate those mcdonald's adverts sorry mcdonald's um and somebody was like oh but i've really missed them have you not missed them? miss them i was like no i haven't missed them <laughs> but coming on to the gut that's why we were coming to have a conversation today because that's one of your specialities isn't it and it really fascinates me actually because up until about five years ago, I'll put my hands up and say that I didn't know that that was played such a big part. And I think people are really blind to the inside of their bodies. Um, and people also just associate the gut with, it's just there, but it isn't just there, is it? It starts up here. So can you tell us a bit about, because this is your thing, this is what you know about, and why it's so important for us to really start here, you know, and that is like the, the center of the, you know, all of our kind of, I see it as my like big factory of this is where we have to keep the workers going. This is when you have to shut it down at night so we can have this cleansing process. Can you talk us through that a bit more? Sure. Um, well, to me, the gut is one of the central systems, the digestive system really is our central system that govern huge amount of functions for our body. The obvious stuff that we all obviously know about, we eat food, something comes out of the other end, in the middle comes digestion and absorption. And that's sort of the obvious things that most people are very familiar with. But the stuff that we are not familiar with is an actual whole neurogastroimmune complex in the gut. Um, and I'll detangle that for you. So the gastro bit really is the gut, which means that it's the actual gut tube, which is basically a single tube from outer anus. Um, and then also the gut bacteria. So we have microbiomes throughout our gut from um, the mouth. That oral microbiome is really, really important for things like periodontitis, for systemic disease, even pregnancy outcomes, actually. Oh, why? Um, so that's, that's your oral microbiome plays a huge role in that. And then we have our small intestinal microbiome, which um, plays a huge role in how, how well we can digest and absorb our food, because that's where the food passes from the mouth to the esophagus to the stomach, where hopefully it'll get broken down in terms of the stomach acid and the start of the digestive process there from the protein digestion. Then it goes to the small intestine. That's where really we're meant to be breaking our food down into tiny, tiny constituent pieces and absorbing them through our gut wall to feed ourselves. 
And the small intestine has its own microbial community. And if it's overgrown, it can cause a number of things. It can cause IBS type symptoms. It can cause really not very obvious things like histamine issues, for example. Um, if our brush border, the lining of the small intestine is unhealthy, we're not able to absorb our food properly. So that means that you might be eating the most wonderful diet ever, but you're only absorbing a proportion of what can actually be digested and absorbed. So the small intestinal health is very, very important. And what plugs into that is our liver, our biliary system, the gallbladder, and our pancreas. And can we make sure they all work really, really well to help our digestion? And then we move on to the colon, and that's really where the water gets withdrawn from whatever waste that we didn't absorb. And our gut microbiome there feeds on all the fibers that we can't digest, but for them it's food. And they give us, in turn, B-complex vitamins, vitamin K, and a number of different metabolic things like butyrate that influence our metabolism, can influence our mood, you know. So, and the that's really the gastro bit of it. Um, and that's just a part of it. The second two bits that we have to think about is the gut has its own nervous system. Um, and that's the neuro sort of enteric nervous system. And that is how one of the ways that the gut and the brain communicate to each other. So for example, the vagus nerve is part of our rest and digest system. And it conveys messages from our gut back to our brain, for example. Nice. Also, our brain via the vagus nerve can govern how our gut moves, how much motility we have, digestive secretions, you know, all sorts of things. So you have this complicated loop that goes on via the enteric nervous system, via the vagus nerve, um, and our brain, our gut communicate very, very closely. And the final bit is the immune system. So we have a really huge amount of immune system just under the surface of our gut lining. And the reason it's there is to protect us because if we're thinking about it, what we think of in the inside of our gut is actually the outside. It's actually the external environment. It's not inside us at all. Yeah. So what the immune system then has to sit there under the gut, under the gut lining, it has to sit there and have a look and go, right, are you food and are you meant to be here? Is that all okay? And are you something that's going to harm me? Are you a pathogen? So it has to, the, the immune tolerance or how well you're able to tolerate foods and how well you're able to fight pathogens in your gut and how well your immune system functions is also absolutely dependent on what's called the mucosal immune system, the immune system lining, lining the gut there. So that's really how complicated it is. And we know that the gut microbiome um, problems um, are, have been associated with a number of things from autoimmune disease mm -hmm. to skin diseases like acne, eczema and psoriasis. We think, what? Gut? How does that work? But the gut-skin axis is now a very well-known connection as well. Um, mind, so the mind-gut connection is a huge one. Anxiety and depression have been associated with issues with the gut. Um, pretty much most things I have to say, if I have to think of something to put into my uh, medical research engine, I probably could find your connection between most things and the gut. Yeah. 
so yes, it is an absolutely crucial pillar of getting things right for our health is to look after our gut and help us eat the right foods that support our gut health and also support our digestive processes so we're able to digest and absorb our food properly. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I know a bit about this, just not as much as you, but kind of I know a bit about from all the reading I do and the courses I've done. Um, In terms of people's eating habits um, and actually learning to eat properly, like you were saying, you have to break the particles down. Um, First of all, looking at eating habits, I mean, in the modern day age, I mean... There is a percentage of people that eat really, really well, you know, um, know what to eat. But actually, we've still, and I see it all the time, still got fast food chains in our face. You know, everything's about a lot for a lot of people is all about quick eating, um, ready meals in the supermarket, which pretty much started in my childhood, I would say, where I started seeing like, you know, the marketing making mum's life easier. Um, I would say lucky for me, my mum, God bless her, was really into making everything from scratch. So she always had a good, because she missed home. She was from Malaysia. So she was always missing that kind of food. So she had to make her own food because at that point they hadn't figured that out. But I remember going to people's house quite quickly when I was younger, which was a long time ago, and people were already getting into that the marketing type of food you know and to the strangest things people were having but you know and also lots of tin food were and that's still semi-fashionable now isn't it because it's inexpensive but there is a way around working good diet into food but it's acceptance of it isn't it as well absolutely and i think there's i guess two components to unpack here and one is what we eat and the other thing is how we eat yeah. Um, and I'm going to start with how we eat, actually. And then we're going to talk about what we eat, because how we eat has just as much impact on our digestive health as well. So you talked about the, the quick meals or the rushing around bit. And I think that's one of the reasons why I see so much, you know, really long standing IBS in my clinic. Because what happens is that we forget to engage the first phase of digestion. So our first phase of digestion is in the brain, actually. (laughs) So actually, when you sit down, you look at food. Just looking at food starts digestive processes in your body. Gosh, that's crazy, isn't it? It's really interesting. In fact, just looking at food can cause you to preemptively release some insulin from your pancreas to be able to prepare yourself for the sugar hit that's going to come from the food. Wow. Um, in fact, as a, as a junior doctor, I was told not to ever sit down when you're on call and look at your food and then run off to the ward because you would get to the ward and faint because your insulin would have dropped your blood sugar. And if you didn't put even a single thing in your mouth, you would be the one be on the floor of the ward and not oh, be helpful my... to any patient whatsoever. And they actually tell you this. Yeah, no, well, what, what, we had a really great, great guy doing our induction. He said, just Whatever you do, just one mouthful, but something, because otherwise you will end up on the floor as you walk into the ward. Oh my goodness. So the first thing is the brain phase or the cephalic phase of digestion, really. Sit down, look at your food, smell it. You know, it's there. Don't look at your phone. Don't look at whatever else it is. Look at your food. Smell it. Actually prepare your body, because as we do this, the brain is very clever. It will govern a whole ton of cascades within our body that will increase our stomach acid secretion, digestive enzymes, all sorts of clever and wonderful things. And then chew. 
you know, for thinking about how many times we, we don't chew because we're too busy looking at things or rushing around or just gulping something down. Chewing properly is one of the biggest digestion tips you can have for people. Yeah. Sitting down, properly chewing your food. Um, not over drinking water with it as well. So don't gulp down your one whole water intake for the day with your meal because that's not very helpful for the digestive system. What Sip does it do to the system? Well, it basically just dilutes the, the digestive juices. It just makes it a bit harder for your, for your, your stomach has to work a hell of a lot harder when you put a half a pint of water in there or a pint of water in there to create a digestive environment that's conducive to digestion. So it has to pump out a whole lot more acid, basically, to make yeah. you digest your food. It's almost so, like you're putting a fire out, really, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly like that. So actually, and if you look at some of the traditional cultures, they will tell you the same thing. You know, the, in, in Ayurveda, you get told not to eat, not to have a lot of cold foods with your normal big lunch meal because it's not good for your ani or your digestive fire. Yeah. And it's very simple. It's very, very true. So sip your water, but don't gulp down a whole pint with your lunch um, and chew really, really well. And then also don't try as much as you can. Sit down when you eat and, not, and take a couple of breaths so that you're not stressed out of your mind when you're eating. Because when we are constantly in fight or flight, our digestive um, capacity gets shut down. Because when you're in fight or flight, nobody cares if you digest your dinner. You're in survival mode, ultimately. Yeah. So even just taking a couple of breaths to get yourself more into the parasympathetic rest and digest mode is it has a really powerful effect on the way that you eat and how you receive food and how your body receives food. And I guess at the other end of it, as like you said, it's about a little bit about um, how we live our lifestyles, about nighttime. You mentioned something earlier. But the fact that we're not designed to munch our way through the day, we are not ruminants. We're not meant to be eating all the time at all hours. We need to have an adequate overnight fast to enable our small intestine to clean itself out, keep itself nice and tidy, and to keep the bacterial levels under control. So having a good 12-hour overnight fast, for some people it might, they might need longer, is really important to keep your gut health in good action. Instead of eating something last thing at night and going to bed in a full stomach, that's never going to be good for gut health, really. So the how we eat, I think, has an absolutely massive impact on our digestion. And what you eat, what we eat, absolutely, I'm with you, Kat, you know, the, the whole epidemic of beige food yeah, that comes gosh. out of packets, what, what we call food-like substances in the functional medicine world. They're not foods anymore. They're food-like substances. <laughs> yeah, it's like eating plastic, isn't it, really? And the, the color bit is, is a, unfortunately a very big casualty and, and it's crucial for gut microbiome health. And from my perspective, there are two things that you absolutely need to have on your plate for gut microbiome um, health, and that's diversity and color. So color, we have to have really as much as possible a rainbow of colors throughout our day, really. And it doesn't mean to have giant amounts of each different color, but just small amounts of each color has a different impact on our system. So we know, for example, the deep purple foods are particularly rich in anthocyanins, which are high in basically have high antioxidant activity and are also very good at building healthy gut microbiome levels. Yeah. Uh, we know that obviously red foods like tomatoes and watermelon can be rich in lycopene, which is an excellent antioxidant. And 
each different color has something else to offer both us and our gut microbiome. So that's why it's important to eat a whole rainbow of color as close to daily as possible. Um, and even if you put a small amount, even if you put a few cherry tomatoes in your plate alongside whatever else you're eating, all of it counts. Yeah. Um, and avoiding beige plates as much as possible. I always think like beige food is non-food really. So <laughs> even making small choices, you know, small choices like, don't get me wrong, lettuce is fine. It's got some, some nutritional benefits, but swapping your lettuce for something dark green, like, you know, a rocket or a watercress, that's a nutritional powerhouse you could be eating right there. Yeah. I mean, watercress is amazing, isn't it? Love that stuff. It's so good. And it's um, got so many benefits to it as well, hasn't it? That people don't it realize. It, it's actually part of the cruciferous vegetables where kind of broccoli and cauliflower belong. And most people don't, don't really realize that. But it's brilliant. It's a bitter food. So bitter foods light up our upper digestive tract and help us digest foods really well. And as a cruciferous vegetables, it also contains something called glucosinolates, which are very good kind of anti-cancer compounds and antioxidant compounds. Um, very, very important. But so color is crucial. Then diversity is really important. Um, and that's where we really fall down in kind of Western cultures on, on diversity of foods. You know, if you're thinking about sometimes what, what would people eat through the day, you know, they might have some cereal or toast, you know, breakfast, might have a sandwich at lunchtime, might have pasta for dinner or pizza for dinner. Well, that's wheat, wheat and more wheat. You know, there were yeah. really a lot of diversity within that diet. So we have to think, okay, well, how can we vary it? How can I vary my, my grains? How can I vary my vegetables? How can I vary my fruit? So that we're not subsisting on just wheat and bananas because that some of the time, you know, I, I see, you know, kids and adults sometimes, you know, bananas and apple is the only fruit they know. Mm. It's tricky because actually their gut microbiomes need as much color as possible. And it doesn't have to come, you know, fresh because I know fresh berries can be really expensive, but trying to find good sources of frozen fruit and veg, they're yeah. absolutely fine. They're still full of nutrition. Some of them are actually better than the stuff that's lying around in the supermarket shelf for two weeks. So it, it, can, be, it can be quite simple. And the spices as well is the stuff that I bet your mom was amazing at using. Oh, so yeah, tons. We, we, we don't use them as much anymore. Herbs and spices are an incredible powerhouse for not just our gut microbiome health, but being good source of antioxidants, anti-inflammatory compounds, which is really, really important. So, you know, we, when we think about a salad, why not throw in a bit of chopped parsley or a bit of chopped coriander? You know, if you making, um, we always think we have to do something special with spices. You know, we have to have a curry. Yeah. At the time I use spice, but actually, you know, I make, you know, turmeric and cumin scrambled eggs because actually we can put in a number of different foods. You could put in soups, stews, you can have frozen um, chopped herbs, you know, these days you can have mm. markets have stuff like frozen parsley or frozen coriander um, that you can easily get. And you, then you, if you're worried about, you know, bunches of fresh herbs wilting in your fridge, then that's a really good solution to, to try and encourage good gut health and good anti-inflammatory eating. Welcome to One Size Does Not Fit All with One Life Tribe. We're sponsored by Renourish. Renourish are delicious grab-and-go fresh soups in a pioneering, heatable, fully recyclable bottle. Renourish soups are plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, and packed with vitamins. Find them in all Waitrose stores. 
one thing I wanted to ask, actually, I'm going to go back a bit now. It's the, um, what you hear a lot about now is like the leaky gut syndrome. So is it true that when we are babies, we have a, our gut wall has holes in it when we're born. And then when we're older and we don't eat very well, we can get leaky gut because our gut again gets holes within it. Is that, I, I mean, I'm explaining it really badly here, but can you help us explain this? It's kind of an interesting thing. I have to say, it's, I don't like the word leaky gut syndrome because leaky gut syndrome really is quite an old term that more talks about specific symptoms that uh, lead you to the diagnosis of leaky gut. And we now know that's just not true. Actually, okay. increase, we call, well, these days we call it increased intestinal permeability. I know that's a mouthful. So if we want to talk leaky gut, we'll just remove the syndrome out of it because the syndrome is kind of very old way of thinking about it because increased permeability of your intestine doesn't mean kind of physical holes. What happens is we have cells that are meant to be very, very tight together. Think of a fence. Okay. So think of a fence that's got really, really tight posts and you can't see through it. Okay. So that's really what your gut barrier is meant to be. And the only thing that can escape through it may be a tiny bit of light. Okay. That's, so when you look at that fence, it's really a, an excellent fence. That's our normal intestinal barrier. And through it, you can only get through very, very tiny things. So like amino acids or simple sugars like glucose, they can get through and get absorbed into our bloodstream and then travel off to wherever they need to go. Now, what happens is when we take big amounts of things like alcohol and SAIDs, like ibuprofen or naproxen, for example, our gut becomes more permeable. So these, these really tight junctions between these cells, that fence becomes, you know, the gaps become wider. You can see through them more effectively. So that physical holes, they're really on a tiny microscopic level you wouldn't even be able to see. Yeah. But the whole point of it is that more things can get past that barrier that are not ever supposed to get past it. And when they're past it, they have a chance to poke your immune system because that immune system, as we talked about, lies right under the surface of that gut lining. And that's how some reactions get, get set up in terms of food reactions, in terms of other immunological reactions that people can get. And also some of the bacterial products from our gut microbiome can get through and cause trouble. So if you end up, for example, having um, yeah, a couple of course of antibiotics, so your, your gut microbiome isn't necessarily in great shape, um, and then you, I don't know, you drink a high alcohol diet and have a high saturated fat or high processed food diet, that means that you have this double whammy of having what's called a dysbiosis, which means an imbalance in gut bacteria, plus an increased leakiness of your normal barrier, that means that these bacterial products can get through and set up an inflammation reaction. So you can get increased chronic inflammation, which can drive a number of things, really. We're looking at, at the moment in research, we're looking at links to cardiovascular disease, to autoimmune disease, to the, well, the people are calling it the leaky brain syndrome or neuroinflammation. So if we get inflammation in our system, it can actually affect the blood-brain barrier and can increase the levels of inflammation in the brain. So that's the link between things like brain fog, anxiety, depression. Right. Um, so 
it's got a huge impact on it. What I would say is the syndrome bit is the reason I don't like it is because it doesn't come with a preset right. levels of symptoms that you can tick off. Increased permeability is, is a big issue because a lot of us are using things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, probably too much actually, yeah. and not protecting our guts enough. And the problem is some of the time medically, the stuff we use to protect our gut from them like a meprazole to protect your stomach from ibuprofen, set up their own problems in the microbiome. So if you have too much meprazole, for example, um, and you have a dysbiotic small intestine, you have a chance of getting a small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Right. And that can cause a number of different issues. So in terms of, yeah, we need to, we need to look after our gut barrier. And that means being very judicious with the medications that we take so not taking things that we don't need them so not asking for or not getting antibiotics when we have colds rather than a proper bacterial pneumonia um yeah reducing the amount of processed foods and alcohol that we have because that can absolutely affect not only our gut microbiome levels but also how good our intestinal barrier is yeah and and just trying to eat stuff that's supportive for the gut so it's trying to eat that colorful diverse array of foods that are real foods um i always love michael pollan's words you know eat real foods not too much mostly plants yeah really that's 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 what i agree with you know you can take that off i yeah. don't mind who you are from you know dedicated carnivore to a fully plant-based person you can find yourself within that spectrum yeah, yeah that's important the so, so I'm just going to have a like, so on snacks and things then, because I talk to a lot of people and they eat really well in the daytime and then they get to a point in the evening where they've had a hell of a day with their kids and work or whatever. And then they, it's this human reward system that we have, don't we? We're like, we sat down, we got through the day, pass me the chocolate. <laughs> How bad is that for you? Is that, is that balance? Is it bad? What, what do we think of that? I always think 80-20, you know, to me, always 80-20 rule because you've, you can't be perfect. And actually, if you drive yourself to be perfect, that's a source of stress, which we don't like in gut problems. 80-20, um, if, you, if you're going to have a snack, if you're going to have a treat or chocolate or sweets or whatever, make it reasonable and have it after a balanced meal. And then it's fine. It's not going to affect your um, blood sugar spiking, for example. Um, quite as much but don't eat it you know before you go to bed now before you go to bed because that's not really going to be a great <laughs> which most that. people are doing Which I and, and I get that but actually at that point the other thing I always say to people if you have to think of rewarding yourself with this and be like okay right what can what does your body actually need you have to ask yourself what do I need half the time the answer isn't I need this chocolate magnum half the answer is I need rest I need sleep, I need a cuddle, I need to talk to someone. So I actually think the question here is far deeper than is a bit of chocolate bad for you? No, yeah. it's a bit like, no, it's not bad for you. I eat dark chocolate a lot of the time, but what I try and do is I eat it after a balanced meal at dinner time and I put a curfew on it so that I get my overnight fast. Yeah. Um, but it's also not using these things as a substitute for the stuff that we truly emotionally need, actually. Yeah. Actually, coming on to that then, in terms of your gut health and hormones, which are then then obviously related to a couple of you know, mental health issues as well. So, 
the cycle of women, for instance, will be, you know, as teenagers, you know, I have a teenage niece at the moment who my sister has gritted teeth quite a lot of the time. One of my best friends has that. But then, you know, we have a next cycle that we go through when, you know, we become more of a woman before, you know, and then obviously the menopause is up there too. And all of these things have a massive rejig on us, don't they? Um, we talk about it much more now, but we have not always been able to be upfront because it's just like, oh, you know, we get a lot of eye rolling, you know. Women's issues. Women's issues. <laughs> She's just going to take cover, everybody. <laughs> but now people are beginning to understand it more. I mean, there's even employers are understanding this a little bit more now um, because for some people it's worse than it is for others but this all comes back to how we look after ourselves as well absolutely absolutely and I think there's a there's quite a big multifactorial thing that really is related to things like PMS and PMDD which is obviously part of what what you've talked about the also, our gut microbiome has an influence on our hormones and the way that our hormonal balance works. Um, so usually we have to get rid of our estrogen. Our estrogen is a signaling molecule. And just like you wouldn't want to keep your car lights on throughout the day, you know, you need to turn it on and turn it off. Um, so when we go through our female cycles, we need to be able to modulate our levels of hormones. So the job of that is given to the liver to take the estrogen and basically detoxify. So turn it into something else that can be gotten rid of. And once the liver's done that, um, quite often these products are estrogen products are put into bile and they go into our small intestine first, and then they travel through the gut and effectively poops them out. Now our you say it so politely. <laughs> we do. What can I say? Um, but what we what we find is actually if you've got a problem with your gut bacteria. And then some of these bacteria are very clever at making this enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. And this enzyme can take this packaged estrogen and unpackage it and send it back into your own circulation. So it's a little bit like you try to send someone a parcel and it keeps coming back to you, being returned by raw mail. It gets very, very annoying. <laughs> so, and actually what, that ten what tends to happen, um, and obviously there's, there's still a lot of research ongoing in that area, but of course, what that means is that systemically you have higher, slightly higher estrogen levels that you meant to have. You're not detoxifying them properly. And that can have an impact on a number of things. It can have an impact on what's called estrogen dominance conditions. So anything from you know, endometriosis to fibroids to a number of things. For some women, it has an impact on their PMS. It just depends on whether that's the driver for your particular kind of PMS, because the key thing is not to assume that one, the same condition has the same root in all people. That's why there is such a thing as personalized medicine. So I know for some women, their PMS can be driven from where their estrogen progesterone levels are. For other women, it's actually very much tied into their nervous neurotransmitter systems. There's a number of different things that, that kind, of, kind of go with that. But self-care is utterly important for all of this. And also not tolerating unacceptable symptoms, because that's another thing that I don't find acceptable in, in my world, that it's okay for you to not be yourself for half of the month. Oh, it's just that time of the month. Well, no, it's not. It's okay for you to have heavy, painful periods that leave you in bed for two days. No, it's not. 
Mm-mm. There is something going on within that physiology that's not right. So therefore it needs fixing. It needs fixing as early as possible in young girls and you know, teens and early 20s. So we don't get to later in life and then find we have problems with fertility or find we've actually had undiagnosed endometriosis or a number of different things. So I always say to women, teach your girls to, if something is not right with their periods, beyond the usual settling couple of years, which happens when you start periods, if something is not right, get it sorted. See someone. If your doctor's not sympathetic, see a nutritionist. You know, see someone, but it needs to be sorted um, because we shouldn't have to put up with it. You know, no. I, I know of no man who'd put up with that level of symptoms every yeah. month. <laughs> well, let's so, just say man flu. But, but what I'm trying to say is I think, you know, not all of us need to listen to our bodies, whether you're a man or a woman, whoever you are, you need to listen to your body. And if your body's telling you something is not right, if it's putting you in bed for two days, or if it's making things so heavy you can't, or, or painful you can't function, go and see someone. That is a sign that something is not right. So don't wait for a really, really big sign like cancer to sit you down on your ass, basically. Yeah. Oh, and we both know it's just do not wait for that. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> but, it, but that's so interesting, actually, because I remember as a girl, like I remember having quite heavy, what I thought were heavy periods, and everybody just said it was normal it's just it's normal don't worry we all go through that and you're just like oh okay then yeah and you can see it coming into the way anything to do with women's kind of health like that you know like even IBS people people get a bloated tummy and then they say oh that's normal it's not normal (laughs) no absolutely and I think you know I think heavy is slightly different for many people um but to me the markers of something that are going wrong is how much it inhibits your daily function, really. If you have heavy periods, but actually you eat a really good diet and they're not bothering you in any other way, for example, you're not dropping your iron, they're generally, you're fine as long as you get careful with your protection. That might necessarily be a big thing. But if you're flooding, or certainly when you come to perimenopause, if you just, your bleeding become, can become uncontrollable if you've got fibroids or other issues, that needs to be sorted. Mm. If you find that they're pain, really painful and that you're having to you know, have a ton of non-steroidal drugs just to get you through the day, again, that is not normal. I think we have to accept a slight variability in flow between different people because like everybody, you know, like bowel movements are slightly different between people. You know, <laughs> some people go once, some people go twice, it's fine. It's all <laughs> normal range. But it's, it's about how, if it has an impairment on your daily function, it needs to be looked at usually. And I, I'm not saying that it needs medication because that's often not the answer, but it needs something adjusting within your lifestyle, maybe within your food, maybe within the way you take care of yourself to get the balance more right for you and your hormones. Yeah. And it's your energy alone is your barometer, isn't it? That is what you should just really be looking at because so often you hear people say oh, i'm just so tired all the time or you know but those are that you shouldn't be tired all the time no there is there is I said, there's there's times when fatigue is pretty natural so i would say it's natural to be exhausted during the first few months of your baby's life because yeah all hours and that's i'm sorry there's no chance i could figure that one <laughs> um, uh, but actually, yeah, the rest of the time, you're absolutely right. We should be able to have natural tiredness that comes with having a day well spent or having done a good run or having done a good workout. And that's fine. 
But if we wake up and we're tired before we even got out of bed, then no, that is not normal, actually. Unless you just got three hours of sleep because <laughs> your baby was up in the night or something. Yeah. But, but something needs sorting. And I think I always think that actually we we deprioritize our health care so much um because unless something big happens because everything else is more important you know work is more important kids are more important this is more important mm. and then actually no there is there is a reason for why we should be doing self-care why should we be looking after ourselves because if we break who's going to be there to put us together we need to take care of ourselves every day it's not an optional thing it is an essential thing to do yeah. Whatever it is you can do in some small way, you know, whether it is putting a bit of rocket on your plate tonight or whether it is making sure, you know what, I'm going to put to go to bed alarm tonight instead of staying up and watching Netflix. I'm <laughs> going to try and get myself half an hour extra sleep because I know that I'm a lot of, under a lot of pressure. Whether it is literally just you know, shutting the door, putting a meditating sign on the, on, the, on, the, on the door and just having five, ten minutes to yourself depending on the age of your children who may or may not respect that sign. <laughs> you know, simple things. Like I always say to people that like even just, you know, breathing is one of my key things. Like breath work is so important and it takes two minutes out of your day. We've got to breathe anyway, so you might as well do it properly. Yeah. So trying to slow down the rush of life and just spending, you know, one to two minutes doing a bit of breath work can make a huge difference to your day. I would say so small things, small things, but don't put up with anything that impairs your daily function um, and build yourself a toolkit to take care of yourself. Going back to the gut for one second and, uh, and then exercise actually, because you know, it's about, it's about building our little cell factories, isn't it? With exercise to help us out as well. Can you take us through that a little bit, please? Sure. Well, let's start with, um, yeah, gut health and exercise are quite an interesting link, actually, because there are some things that are useful, some things that are not um, particularly useful. So I think our gut likes a reasonable amount of activity. It actually helps our motility. So if you're suffering from constipation, you need a reasonable level of physical activity to keep things going. But really long periods of aerobic exercise, so think training for a marathon, probably not the best thing for the gut so that's a tricky bit and when i know a number of yeah i, I used to run half marathons so a number of people will say if i'm really at my hard, hard um, training time i find that my gut's not particularly happy so what i would say is there is a golden middle somewhere um at, at doing enough activity which you know from guidelines really is 150 to 180 minutes of moderate to hard aerobic activity per week yeah and and the key bit two resistance training sessions per week and that's a bit that most people forget because they'll go okay well i've gone i don't know for a run or a walk or other stuff like that but i'm like nah you need to do something that's resistance based whether it's yoga pilates weights i don't mind what it is but something that actually builds muscle in a different way because cardiovascular exercise or aerobic exercise is there really for your for your cardiovascular system to get a workout you will get some muscle benefits, but not the same way as you would from the resistance exercise. So balancing the two out is really, really good. If you do suffer from IBS or gut health issues and keeping your aerobic workouts lower in intensity and un 30 minutes and under can be a really good therapeutic thing to do. 
Okay. Lots of people that are trying to give themselves healthy, they can over-exercise actually. And they can exercise for 45 minutes to an hour aerobically and they go, oh my, you know, I get a lot of bloating or I get a lot of diarrhea after I do that. At that point, temporarily while you sort your gut out, you might need to pull back a bit. And then once you once your gut is feeling better and you've gotten it more sorted, you can expand your your time and your intensity a little bit more. But just be wary of doing kind of either really prolonged aerobic exercise or a lot of high intensity training if you've got bad gut issues because it can impact on the gut. Right. That's interesting, actually, because that's another thing you don't really hear. I thought it was really interesting, you know, like during the beginning of this lockdown where um, Boris said, everybody get out for an unlimited hour. Unlimited exercise. <laughs> but I, love, I love the unlimited exercise because I'm like, I'm sorry, who on earth would ever do unlimited exercise? <laughs> yeah, it's not a salad bar. <laughs> it's kind of, but, but the, the amount of people who started running. Yes, yes. Which, I, which is good, but suddenly yeah. you had injuries happening at left, yeah. right and center because people weren't like taking yeah. advice. They were just going out and doing this hardcore exercise. Suddenly everybody was doing their Joe Wicks hit sessions you know it's so much so that he got a world record for it you know um brilliant i think that we all took the initiative to go out there and i hope that not everybody has flailed off and that people are still doing some form of exercise but it's that thing like you say don't try and do everything all at once and get really obsessed with it you know we have to bring these things back in don't we yeah it's about balance i always think as well it's about a little bit about balancing out your your life and your exercise. So, for example, if you have a very much fight or flight life, actually doing a bit of yoga that's quite grounding can not only count as your resistance training, but can also provide some mind-body benefits for you. So thinking about things like that and not going kind of zero to hero. The weekend warrior bit as well has actually been shown to be harmful in studies. So you can't just sit on your bottom and do nothing for you know, five or six days a week and then just go out for a heroic run or cycle um, and think that you've, you've kind of done it all. So it's like little and often is always better. Keeping it reasonable, but not going from zero to hero is, is, is good advice. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so if anybody wanted to, uh, listening to this today and they're going, right, what can I do from today to really kickstart my gut health properly, really, you know, take note of the inside of my body what would you advise them color and diversity of food is number one absolutely and then number two i would say chew well so actually sit down and engage the brain in terms of um being able to sit down looking at food don't not eating when you're in a wild rush sitting down looking at food chewing it well and don't eat last late at night because that's not going to be good for your gut either yeah. And I think, you know, like the chewing thing. I mean, somebody was asking me the other day, how long should we chew for? Oh my goodness. There's so many different opinions on that one. I think like as long as you've got a good texture that you're not gulping down. So it needs to be semi-liquid and then you're, you're good at chewing. And different people chew at different speeds. So you can't say that many chews or chew for 30 seconds. But just as long as your food turns into a semi-liquid in your mouth and it slides down nicely, then you're fine. Okay, that's good advice. Because <laughs> some people were like, I've heard it's 200 times. I was like, what? <laughs> I have to say, I, I don't have the time to sit down and count how many times I chew. I would, <laughs> I, I would rather enjoy my meal than, than count the amount of times I chew. But 
paying attention to it, I think, uh, instead of getting obsessed about how many times, paying attention to it, and I think the big thing is mindful eating, eating with your attention on your food, and eating a colourful, varied plate. That's, that's, to me, is really, really important. Great. You know, I could talk to you all day about this because I, I actually find it so fascinating and you've taught me so much more today. And I know people are going to want to get hold of you. Um, and obviously they can find you on the Wildlife Tribe, but where can somebody find you if they're looking, looking to maybe make an appointment with you today, find out more about your clinic? Do you want to tell us where we can find you? Sure. If you go onto synthesisclinic.co.uk, that's our clinic website, and you can see the contact us page there. Uh, we're also going to be running some online courses on, on gut health um, sort of starting January, February next year. So some exciting things coming up if you're interested in that angle. Well, that's really good. So how, so anybody could do those courses? Absolutely. Anybody who's interested in sorting their gut health out, it's, it's going to be aimed at people who don't know much about the gut, who want to start at any level and just learn a bit more. And it's not aimed at people with really bad digestive health issues because really you need to go and see someone one-to-one for those more than anything. But if you just want to improve your gut health and learn a little bit more about your gut microbiome or your gut immune system and how to keep them healthy, then that will be the course. Brilliant. That's fantastic, Nina. Um, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Um, and I'm sure at some point we will have you back because I think you're amazing. And I think that there's so much more to actually learn from you. Um, I think the fact that you're so sort of open-minded, you've got so much knowledge. I think everybody should needs to know who Dr. Nina is. I'm not going to say the full name, but Dr. Nina. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me, Kat. You're a star. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you for today. And we look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thank you.